0: Moses has a point. Why would anyone take him at his word? Telling the people exactly how this happened might not do him any good either. The business about a voice coming out of a burning bush is going to make people think he is crazy. The Bible is full of stories that we all know and love. But how well do we know them? The answer might surprise you. The Bible you thought you knew going to dive deep into the exquisite details of the biblical stories that make them fascinating and transforming. In last week's podcast, we dealt with Moses when he argued with God on the mountaintop and confronted Israel at the foot of the same mountain. In this week's podcast, we will deal with Moses in the famous burning bush incident. This is no ordinary bush, however, for Moses encounters God in this strange plant. This episode is narrated in the book of Exodus, chapters 3 and 4. We will treat this passage in two successive weeks. As the story begins, Moses is alone and, in a way, in exile. This is because he had to flee Egypt, because he had murdered in cold blood, an Egyptian man who was mistreating Israelite slaves. Moses had made it to the land of Midian. When he arrived, he came to a well. Typically, as many of you already know, in the Bible, men meet women at wells. Moses was no exception. In this instance, he met seven women, all of whom were daughters of a Midianite priest. It turns out that Moses got to the well in the nick of time, for he was able to rescue the women who were being harassed by bully shepherds. When the sisters arrived back home, their father wanted to know how they were able to do their chores so quickly. They responded by telling their father how this man that they had met had intervened in their behalf and even helped them to water their flocks. The father wanted the sisters to find this man and invite him over for dinner as a way of thanking him. Moses not only got a nice meal for his efforts, but got a bride in the process, for he married one of the sisters, Zipporah. Right off the bat, Moses and Zipporah had a son. That's in Exodus 2, 15-22. Not only did Moses acquire a bride for his good deed, but he went to work for his father in law. That is how it happened that Moses was taking care of his father in law's sheep when he came to Horeb. As soon as we realize that Horeb was known as, quote unquote, the mountain of God, we anticipate something out of the ordinary is going to happen. We are not. Disappointed. That's in Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Suddenly, and amazingly, an angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in flames emanating from a solitary bush. As though that were not sufficiently astounding, the bush was not being consumed by the fire. Fire is a common symbol for God's presence in Scripture. Think of the Pentecost story. But this fire that continued to rage was extraordinary. Moses could not believe his eyes, apparently, so he approached for a closer look. That's in verses 2 and 3. The sight was incredible enough, but when Moses neared the bush, God spoke right out of the bush. Moses would have quite a story when he got home and Zipporah asked him, how was your day? This was no generic voice. Moses did not have to say to the bush, Are you talking to me? God addressed Moses by name, indeed. He invoked Moses' name twice. Hearing God call you by name once should have done the trick, but hearing your name on God's lips twice would freeze you in your tracks. At least Moses has the presence of mind to respond to God's call by saying, Here I am. This is verse 4. After hearing his name mentioned two times, Moses hears this command, Take off your shoes, for you are standing on holy ground. That's in verse 5. Moses had doubtlessly thought he was standing on ground well-suited for grazing sheep. Nothing more and nothing less. But if God said the ground was holy, then the ground was holy. Before we are even told that Moses had the chance to take off his shoes, God has an introduction for Moses to consider. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Perhaps Moses knew the stories of these famous ancestors since he was raised by his mother, until he was grown up and delivered to pharaoh's daughter who had once found him floating in a basket in the nile river that's in verses 9 to 10 of chapter 2 about the story of the pharaoh's daughter regardless moses' reaction was as might be expected fear he hid his face for he was afraid to look at god this was going to be some day once god has gotten moses' attention the divine speech continues god's people have been enslaved by egypt and god is not happy about that god not only is aware of the people's suffering but god has decided to do something to alleviate that suffering indeed god is going to deliver the people from egyptian domination get them out of that land And eventually lead them to a land flowing with milk and honey, a metaphor used to describe a productive, prosperous, and hospitable area. This is no utopia, a word that means no place, but a specific land, one which is currently inhabited by Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. That's in verses 7 and 8. chapter 3. Because the people have cried out so bitterly due to such intolerable circumstances, God has heard that cry and decided to do something about it. That's in verse 9. One imagines that Moses might have wondered why God was telling him all this. Granted, seeing a burning bush that is not being consumed— An angel appearing in the fire, and then God calling Moses by name and telling him to take off his shoes, is not an everyday occurrence. But why am I privileged to observe this spectacular display? Why, O Lord, are you telling me what you are planning to do? Well, if that question was being formulated in Moses' mind, he will soon have an answer. An answer that is as mind boggling as the burning bush itself. God gets right to the point. I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may escort my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. That's in verse 10. All of a sudden, Moses realizes that God has a reason for appearing specifically to him. God wants Moses to be involved in what the deity has in mind for rescuing the Israelite people from Egyptian bondage. God needs an instrument, and Moses is that instrument. Once aware of what God has in mind for him, Moses goes immediately on defense. He is not the least bit interested in what God has just laid out for him. So, he comes up with an excuse. Moses plays the humility card. Who am I? He responds. Basically, he says that he has no credentials to go before Pharaoh and do what God is asking of him. From one perspective, Moses makes a pretty good case. Right now, he is a humble shepherd taking care of someone else's sheep. He has been banished from Egypt. There may even still be a warrant out for his arrest because of the murder he committed. He had not lived with his own people for some time having been most recently under the care of Pharaoh's daughter. Plus, the Israelites, whom he tried to help, seemed rather unappreciative. In short, Moses was neither fish nor fowl. He had made himself odious to the Egyptians and was distant from the Israelites. How could someone with such a paltry resume, one, show his face in an Egyptian palace, or two, put himself in a position representing Israel. Instead of being flattered that God would want to assign him such an important and responsible position, Moses basically accused God of having bad judgment. God does not dignify Moses' excuse by offering a rebuttal. Instead, God says simply, I will be with you. God adds. If you want a sign that I will indeed be with you, when everyone is worshiping on this very mountain, you will realize that I have been with you. This is a curious form of assurance. After everything happens, Moses will have confirmation of God's presence. Moses might have liked a little reassurance before the fact. So, God asks or, more pointedly, demands. Moses, though, says no, because he thinks he is a nobody. God promises the divine presence, to which Moses does not react at all. This conversation is just getting started. After striking out on the excuse, who am I, Moses tries a variation on this identity theme. He wants to know when I go to the people of Israel and tell them that you sent me, what should I say to them if they ask, What your name is? Now, this may sound odd to our modern ears. We inhabit a world where God does not have a name. God is simply God. That is true for Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. When we think of actual divine names, Zeus, Thoth, Marduk, El, Mars, Baal, Ptoch, Enlil, Ishtar, we think of them not only as belonging to ancient history, but also as not having adherence any longer. Polytheism is something that is past. But in the ancient world, every deity had a name. Saying that you believed in God would have been nonsense, Which gods precisely do you reverence, make offerings to, or try to please? Moses' question was absolutely legitimate. God's answer was enigmatic. I am who I am. That's in verse 14 of chapter 3. Was the deity playing games or trying to confuse Moses? Not at all. When God declares Eya Asher I am who I am. That is a kind of play on words. This is because the Israelite God's name is a form of the Hebrew word Hayah, or to be. In a causative form, it may mean something like the deity who causes to be, or the God who creates. That is why God shortens the name in the next breath. Tell Israel. I am, has sent you. Then God gets even more specific. God wants Moses to use the distinctive name of the Israelite deity, something scholars call the Tetragrammaton or four-letter name. In transliteration, this name would be spelled Y-H-W-H. Devout Jews do not pronounce this name when they come across it in the text. So instead, they say Hashem, meaning the name, or they use the word Adonai, which means Lord or Sir. But YHWH is the name of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is the name which the deity wants the elect people to use over the generations. In effect, God is telling Moses to remind the people that YHWH Hashem Adonai, or in English, the Lord, is the very God who spoke to him at the burning bush. That's in verse 15. At this juncture, God gets down to more specifics. The deity wants Moses to gather the elders and tell them that YHWH the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had appeared to him, had seen how badly Israel is being treated, had decided to extract them from their dreadful situation, and has decided eventually to escort them to a land flowing with milk and honey. in the last reference, God uses again that lovely metaphor of prosperity, production, and hospitality, not to mansion the listing of the current inhabitants, Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. That's in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 3. God is on something of a roll, so the divine speech continues. Israel's God predicts that Egypt will listen to Moses, which is why he and the elders need to go to Pharaoh and tell the king, that YHWH, the deity of the Hebrews has met with us. Further, they are to ask the Egyptian king to allow Israel to go for a three-day journey into the wilderness so that they could sacrifice to their God. That's in verse 18. Strangely, however, even though God had just said that the Egyptians would listen, now the deity points out that they would not comply with this request without a divine show of force. That's in verse 19. God plans on using divine muscle by using all sorts of wonders, miraculous events of various kinds, designed to pressure Egypt to let Israel do this. That's in verse 20. Once Egypt experiences these wonders, they will be only too happy to free Israel, at least for the three days. God is not done, however. The Lord does not want Israel to leave Egypt empty-handed. This means that before Israel leaves, Israelite women are to go to their Egyptian neighbors and asking them or anyone who is visiting in these homes for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, which in turn the Israelite women will give to their sons and daughters. In this manner, Israel will not only escape from Egypt, but impoverish it, at least somewhat, and that's in verses 21 and 22 of chapter 3. After this long pep talk based on God's identity as Israel's God, YHWH, and the plans the deity had to rescue the elect people, get them to the promised land, and making it so that they could enrich themselves in the process— One would have thought that Moses' objections were adequately met. Surely, now he and the elders could go to the Pharaoh very confidently and deliver God's message. God had done everything possible to convince Moses that he, and consequently Israel, would be successful in this endeavor. But Moses was not persuaded. There is no chance that the people will believe me when I tell them God appeared to me. That's in verse 1 of chapter 4. Again, Moses has a point. He is a fugitive from Egyptian justice. He is somewhat alienated from his people. He has married a Midianite woman. Why would anyone take him at his word? Telling the people exactly how this happened might not do him any good either. The business about a voice coming out of a burning bush is going to make people think he is crazy. Moses had every right to surmise that no one would believe him. Even so, this was a third excuse. The problem was not so much of what the people would believe, but what Moses himself believed as he encountered God. Well, God dealt with this objection, too. God wanted to know what was in Moses' hand. A stick, he replied. Verse 2. God told him to throw the stick on the ground. When Moses did this, the stick became a snake, from which Moses recoiled. God demanded that Moses grab the snake by its tail. Though a variety of snakes in the wilderness might have been poisonous, Moses did exactly what God said. Almost surely to Moses' relief, the snake became a stick once again when he grabbed it. That's in verses 3 and 4. God told Moses that this little demonstration should prove that God, none other than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, had indeed met with him Curiously, God did not say that Moses should do this stunt when he was trying to convince the Israelites. At least, though, this stunt should remove any doubt Moses was still harboring. But if the stick-snake ploy did not work, God had something else up the divine sleeve. God asked Moses to put his hand on his belly. Easy enough, Moses did this. Immediately, his hand became leprous. After this horrifying change, God told Moses to put his hand back in his belly. Again, Moses did so, at which point the hand was restored to the way it had been. That's in verses 6 and 7. God assured Moses that anyone who did not believe him based on the first sign would certainly believe him on the basis of the second sign. That's in verse 8. In a worst-case scenario, if Israel is still dubious after these two sensational signs, God has one more that Moses could use. God tells Moses to take water out of the Nile River, pour it on the dry ground, and watch it become blood. That's in verse 9. No one could possibly still disbelieve after three such spectacular signs. God is quite confident. To summarize, Moses was herding sheep when he came to Hebron, the mountain of God. God spoke to him from a burning bush. God had Moses take off his shoes because this theophany made the ground holy. God told Moses that Israel's plight had been recognized. Moreover, God would do something about it, even if it required divine force. Moses would have a role in what God was planning for Israel. Moses was to become spokesman for God. Moses was not inclined to go along with the divine plan. He came up with three excuses. One, I am a nobody. 2. I don't even know what God's name is. 3. No one will believe me anyway. God meets all three objections. The story should go on at this juncture, but it doesn't. Why? Moses has another excuse. We will deal with the fourth and the fifth excuses when we continue this passage next week. Let me encourage you to go once again to my website and record to me your uh, email addresses so that I can contact you when we get ready for our mini-courses. And also, if you have any questions, ask me on my email, fspina106 at gmail.com. Thank you. I want to thank you so very much for listening to The Bible You Thought You Knew. I have a question for you. Do you have a question or topic that you'd like me to cover on the podcast? If so, all you need to do is head over to Apple Podcasts and do two simple things. One, leave a rating and review telling me what you think of the podcast. Two, in that review, ask anything you want related to the Bible. That's all you have to do. Then... Listen in to hear your question answered on a future episode. Join us next time on The Bible You Thought You Knew when we discuss Jesus' personal Bible. God bless.